Today I want to talk to you about the concept of the place which the Lord, your God, shall choose, which is something that should, could be on your mind as we head into the Feast of Tabernacles. Now God's instructions about the Feast of Tabernacles appear in several places in the Old Testament, the three main ones, Leviticus 23, the one we go to the most, which assigns the responsibility of proclaiming the time um, of the biblical festivals to the priests. And it's mentioned again in Numbers 29, which is an itemizing of the specific sacrifices they were to make at the festival. And then Deuteronomy 16, which instructs where the biblical festivals are to be conducted. Go to Deuteronomy 16, if you would, and verse 13. Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 through 15. We read this often in a different context, but today we're going to consider it in this, the place which the Lord your God shall choose. Verse 13 says, Celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your winepress. Be joyful at your festival. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the festival to your Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. Now for many, this means Jerusalem. They read that and they think, aha, we're talking about Jerusalem. But Jerusalem, Jerusalem only became the place to keep the festival after many centuries, many centuries after these instructions were given. Jerusalem became the place around 960 BC. I just rounded. Those were the days of Solomon. So during the days of David, which we've been uh, just discussing in the Bible reading that we had this morning, Jerusalem was not the place. It was not the place. Jerusalem became the place, but then it was rejected and destroyed in 70 AD. Looking forward, prophecies of the millennial rule of Christ on earth tell us that Jerusalem will be restored. It will once again be the geographic center of God's government. But that is not now. That's not the case right now. Jerusalem is not the place for God's people to keep the Feast of Tabernacles in this age. Today, we are going to review the places that God has placed his name. And along the way, kind of take a look at how does he designate which place, which location. And then we'll finish with a quick look at how does the present day Church of God fulfill the instruction to come before God in the place he will choose. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of looking at the locations and stuff, 
I want to talk about a, a principle, if you will. What's the purpose of establishing a place to gather? What difference does it make? Who cares? Well, look, God's commands, statutes, and judgments, they, they serve a purpose of showing whether or not we will obey. That's one of the purposes of God's commands. Will you do this or not? But each of God's commands, statutes, and judgments also has another purpose, a very practical purpose of bringing about desired moral outcomes and attitudes and spiritual insights. I think spiritual insights is definitely a big part of what we get from the biblical festivals, although other elements are there as well. The first purpose I want to put on the table for you is the purpose for establishing a place to gather is to separate his people from evil influences. To separate his people from everything that's going on out there. In Revelation 18 verse 4, God says about Babylon, come out of her, my people, so that you do not share in her sins, so that you do not then share in her plagues. Then in uh, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18, Paul walks us through this same thing. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What fellowship does the temple of God have with the temple of idols? And what fellowship does the believer have with unbelievers? And then says, I'm going to live, God says he will live among you, and then repeats that same uh, call. Therefore, be separate, be separate from them, from everything that is unclean. Now, the idea of uh, separation of God's people from evil influences is very nicely and dramatically illustrated for us in Israel's exodus from Egypt. So I'm going to use that one as the primary way of walking through some of this stuff. Uh, it depicts the idea of worship as a form of separation, as a form of separation. Note, and I think you know this already, we're going to go through it together, but God did not say to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they might be prosperous and experience freedom of political expression. That's not what he said. He said, through Moses and Aaron, he said, let my people go so that they may worship me. In the wilderness. And he didn't say this, I'm going to add this, away from you. <laughs> go to Exodus 7, verse 16. Exodus 7, verse 16. This is the, uh, one of the first incidences where this is, comes out. I like it because it mentions the wilderness here. Exodus 7, verse 16. <clears throat> God's telling Moses and Aaron what to say. Then say to him, say to Pharaoh, 
The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. In some ways, you could say, you know, God isn't offering freedom so they can do whatever they want. It's so that they can worship him, that they can come to the truth. They worship me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh refused. And we've gone through this as a congregation. I know many times we uh, focus on this primarily during the spring holy days. Pharaoh refused. He said, no. And then in this instance, the river Nile was turned to blood. Then they go through the same thing again in Exodus 8, verse 1. The same demand is made. Pharaoh says, no. And there's another plague. And then again in Exodus 20. It happens again. Go to Exodus 8, verse 25. Let's take a look at one of these instances because it's a repeating cycle, each followed by a plague and a punishment from God. Exodus 8, verse 25 through 28. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, okay, there have been these plagues, there have been some, you know, horrible stuff, and he was looking for a way out. And Pharaoh said, okay, go sacrifice to your Lord here in the land. And do all that stuff you want to do, but do it in Egypt, okay? Compromise, you know, a little bit of you, what you want, a little bit of what I want. But Moses said, that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer to the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not attack us and stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. So Pharaoh's seeking a compromise, right? Um, Worship God, but, you know, don't go anywhere. Do it here. And God does not accept this compromise. He wants his people to worship him where he says. And so Pharaoh agrees, but then as he does in a, you know, another repeated cycle, then he deceitfully changes his decision and changes his mind. So we go through the cycle again and repeats three more times in Exodus 9, verse 1, then in Exodus 9, verse 13, and then Exodus 10, verse 3. Let my people go. Let them go. Let them go. And each time there's a plague. Go to Exodus 10, verse 8. <clears throat> then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Another compromise. Another idea here from the Pharaoh. Go worship the Lord your God, but uh, tell me who, who, who's going to go. And Moses answered, we will go with our young and our old, with our son and our daughters, flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. And Pharaoh said, Ah, oh, the Lord be with you. If I let you go along with your women and children, clearly you're bent on evil. You're going to take off. <laughs> He's no fool. No, no. Have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you've been asking for. And then Moses and Aaron were driven out of the Lord, uh, Pharaoh's presence. So Pharaoh seeks another compromise. Okay, go, but don't take your women and children, just the men, just the men. 
God will not accept the compromise. He wants everyone to gather for worship. Exodus 10, verse 24. Drop down to that. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, okay, go worship the Lord with your women and children. They can go with you, but leave your flocks and your herds behind. <laughs> All right. So another compromise attempt. God will not accept that compromise. He wants them to bring sacrifices and offerings in a very practical sense. And so what follows is the next great plague on Egypt where God punishes them uh, for not letting his people go. And that is when the firstborn of Egypt are struck down. And after that, Egypt's had enough and Pharaoh says, go worship God, get out of here. And so God removed his people from Egypt. He got them out of there. It wasn't pretty, but he got them out of there and he took them into the wilderness. A place where they could worship and learn from him without distractions, interference, or worldly deceptions. And you can read elsewhere, that's what God says about wilderness experiences. I'm, I'm doing this to get you away from what's on or going on around you. You see that in the book of Hosea as well. And likewise, the Feast of Tabernacles pictures a time when the negative influences and the false teachings of Satan are gone. When we take a break from society to gather before God to learn and to worship. A second purpose, a second purpose of why have a place to gather? Can't you just, you know, like do, you know, commune with God? You can do that, but God wants you to gather too. So for 40 years, Israel was in the wilderness. And they went from here and there to there. And God led them through this pillar of fire. I'm assuming that you know the story, hopefully, if you haven't, read it through. But he led them from here to there with this pillar of fire. So what God wanted was pretty obvious. When the pillar got up, and left, they got up and left. When the pillars stopped, they stopped. And they set up camp and they set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And there, God would be present among them in the, in the midst of this camp. The tabernacle was right there in the middle of the whole camp. And within the tabernacle, there was this cloud of glory, the Shekinah glory, which covered the glory of the Lord. And it would descend. And so they knew God was there. Go to me, Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12, verse 1 through 14. After 40 years in the wilderness, things were going to change, all right? It was time to enter the promised land. That was the next phase. And so now, instead of a very tightly centralized camp, they would spread out throughout this entire nation, this entire country, territory, large geographic area. So some new instructions were needed. How are you gonna do this stuff now that you go into the land? And that's one of the purposes of the book of Deuteronomy. How do we 
How do we move some of this stuff forward into the promised land instead of this camp out in the wilderness? Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 through 14. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess. As long as you live in the land, destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down the altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their ashra poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out the names of those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, tithes, special gifts that you vowed to give, free will offerings, the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. And you are not to do as we do here today, everyone doing as they see fit, since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. And then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I have commanded you, burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And there rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your sons, daughters, male and female servants, and the Levites from your town who have no allotment or inheritance. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, and observe everything I have commanded you. Now, go to Leviticus 17. Verses 5 through 7. Interesting little tidbit here. Talking about the goal, the purpose. Keep people from going their own way. Keep people from just doing whatever they jolly well please. Leviticus 17, verses 5 through 7. This is so the Israelites will bring to the Lord sacrifices they are now making in the open fields. They must bring them to the priest, that is, to the Lord, at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as fellowship offerings. And the priest is to splash the blood against the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. They must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols, the goat demons, if you read the translation. They've got to stop going off into the wilderness and doing whatever they jolly well please and sacrificing to whoever, whoever whatever, however they want. To get, God's trying to break bad habits. He says, no, they've they got to stop doing this, going out, making sacrifices to these demons out there in the wilderness, and they prostitute themselves to them. This is a lasting ordinance. So what is God trying to accomplish? He's trying to break bad habits, bring people together, Bring people together so that they learn to worship God alone in the way that he instructs by those he has appointed to teach. 
so that they learn the truth and not whatever just floats along down the stream. And likewise, the Feast of Tabernacles pictures a time when everyone will call upon the name of God. They won't call on others because there'll only be one. And that's a picture of the Feast of Tabernacles. People won't be doing whatever they feel like, and that's what you see in the world around you. People will all call upon God and God alone for instruction and to worship, and they will be answered with the truth instead of deception. And that's a beautiful picture of the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's have that slide. Now I'm going to go through a little bit of history. And we're going to talk about the places where the temple, where the place has been. Where has God put his name? Where has God put his name? And how does God designate the locations? And the main point of consideration is this, that God works through duly ordained human leadership. And he does that to select locations as well. And this will come into play when we come to our conclusion. So once Israel entered the promised land, they, could no, lo they no longer had this pillar of fire to show them here, there, okay, this is the place, this is not the place. Moving forward, God would work through chosen and designated servants to select locations. He worked through Moses, yes, but you know, there was a pillar of fire, there was some other stuff going on too. But moving forward, God would work through chosen and designated servants to select locations for setting up the tabernacle and therefore determining the place where God's name would be. Go to Exodus 20 as somewhat of an overarching principle. Exodus 20 verse 24 says this. And this is at the end of the commandments section when God's telling people what he wants them to do. And he says, look, make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and cattle. And wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. That's a principle. God says wherever he causes his name to be placed, he will come to them and bless them. So there's some subjectivity to that, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Let's take a look at some of this stuff, though, in history. Go to Joshua 4, verse 19. Not a book we go to often. It's settling of the land. Joshua 4, verse 19 through 20. Uh, this comes directly after the crossing of the Jordan, which is sort of like a mini Red Sea experience. Oh, my pointer. Thanks. Oh, good. Thanks. And uh, so they've crossed the Jordan. It's been a miraculous thing, and this is God's way of designating Joshua is the replacement for Moses. So in verse 19, on the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan, so they came through the river, and they camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. 
Gilgal, on the eastern border of Jericho. And, the 12, and they set up uh, 12 stones of memorial and so forth. But that's where they camped. So this first location of the tabernacle, after coming out of the wilderness, is a strategic choice. I think it looks, you know, you can see it's very strategic. Um, actually, these territories were not supposed to be part of the Promised Land, but Reuben and Gad said, hey, we want to settle here. The Promised Land is this area here. So Gilgal is like a little beachhead that they've made in there. They set up the tabernacle, and Israel could spread out from there over the Promised Land. Now go to Joshua 18, verse 1. Joshua 18, verse 1. There we go. The whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there, and the country was brought under their control. So they moved from Gilgal over to Shiloh. Not a big move, but they moved. They moved it. More centralized, more in the midst of the promised land. This, I put to you, was another strategic location. Um, in the center of the country. It was in the territory of Ephraim. And, you know, it was strategic based on the circumstances of the moment. And Shiloh, Shiloh remained the place of worship for Israel for several centuries. All that time, like during the book of Samuel, which we've been reading, all that time, Shiloh was the place, not Jerusalem. Shiloh was the place. And we've, we've read some of those scriptures and it was a tumultuous time. There was oppression from the Philistines, from the Moabites, as well as internal anarchy within Israel and unfaithfulness among the 12 tribes. It was not a good time. We've gone through some of that in our readings. But Shiloh remained the place where God's name was. And it grew into a thriving religious city and the Levites kind of moved in. Like, you know, anytime that the church sends up a headquarters somewhere, the town just becomes like a magnet for people. That happened in Shiloh. And over time, the priesthood in Shiloh became corrupt and degenerate. We read about that in one of our readings. I think Mr. Biro went through that. The sons of Eli, they were bad. Things were not good in Shiloh. And what happened was, after you know, centuries passed, God was going to make a move. He was going to shake things up and withdraw his blessings from Shiloh. And there would be some changes. What sort of changes are we talking about? Well, we've hinted at them in the readings that we've had. There was going to be a big upheaval in the priesthood. All right, the line of Eleazar was going to be removed from the priesthood, moved over to the line of Ithamar, Aaron's younger son. Another thing, the ark. The ark would be lost. The ark would be removed from the tabernacle. That's a big deal. I mean, what happened was, we went through this, the people took the ark and they figured they could use it to win a battle against the Philistines. God withdrew his blessings. The ark got captured by the Philistines. They had it for a while. God cursed them and they sent it back. But it didn't go back to the tabernacle. It didn't go back to the tabernacle. Another thing that was going to change, there was going to be a sort of a change in leadership, right? And the honor of containing the place where God's name would be. That would pass from Ephraim to Judah. So there's going to be more moves coming forward in the future. And this would be accomplished through the exaltation of David and his descendants. Go to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. 
And it's a long psalm. I'm just going to skip through some sections here that are really pertinent to what we're talking about here. Verses 9 through 12. The men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle, and they did not keep God's covenant, and they refused to live by his law. They forgot what he'd done and the wonders that he'd shown them. He did miracles in their sight of their ancestors in the land of Egypt. Go to verse 56. But they put God to the test, and they rebelled against the Most High, and they did not keep his statutes. Like their ancestors, they were disloyal and faithless, as unreliable as a faulty bow. And they angered him with their high places, and they aroused his jealousy with their idols. He abandoned the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had set up among humans. And he sent the ark of his might into captivity, his splendor into the hands of the enemy. Now drop down to verse 66. But then the, word, the Lord became engaged. <clears throat> he beat back his enemies. He put them to everlasting shame. Then he rejected the tents of Joseph, Ephraim. And he did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, that he established forever. And he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. Another thing that would happen, Shiloh, not only would they lose the tabernacle, Shiloh would be wiped out, destroyed. And it was. We don't have all the details of why. Probably by the Philistines in one of the invasions. So now we get into a period where the tabernacle is on the move. This is a long period of time. It actually takes place over like 80 years. From Shiloh, the tabernacle was, I'm going to say, moved back to Gilgal. So retreat, they go back to Gilgal. Because they were on the defensive, as uh, Mr. Massey brought out in the reading today. Things were bad. They went back to Gilgal, and I assume that this is the place, since it was there that Samuel offered sacrifice connected to the coronation of Saul. Go to 1 Samuel, verse 10. Verse Samuel 10, verse 8. Just a reference so you can see where I'm coming up with this stuff. It says, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. This is um, Saul, Samuel telling Saul, go down ahead of me to Gilgal, and I will surely come down to you there and sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. So he wanted Saul to go to Gilgal. They were going to offer these offerings. Why? Because that's where the tabernacle of meeting was. That's the place to do the offerings. Now, there's another move. Saul, he's king now, he moves the tabernacle to a place called Nob, which is just north of Jerusalem here. Same area, but, you know, they've moved it. Go to 1 Samuel 21, verse 1. Samuel 21, verse 1. David went to Nob. To Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, well, why are you here? Why, what are you doing here, David? Why did David go to Nob? 
because that's where the high priest was. They had moved the tabernacle to Nob, right? Um, we assume that, you know, because David goes there to find the high priest. He gets the showbread, right? That was the big deal. He got the showbread. Well, that would be in the tabernacle, which was in Nob. So there'd been another move of the tabernacle. And um, the rest of the story, we covered this in the reading. Saul finds out that the priests there had helped David, and he <laughs> kills all the priests, and he wipes out the town of Nob. God clearly is not blessing Nob. Now from there, King Saul moves the tabernacle to a place called Gibeon. A little more strategic, closer to Saul's home ground. He's feeling a little threatened. He moves it to Gibeon. I believe a strategic move, right? It's still in the center of the nation, but it's in friendlier territory. And the tabernacle stayed there for the rest of Saul's reign, decades, and the entire reign of David. So a long time, long, long time. It was in Gibeon, okay? Around 80 years, let's say, the ark was not in the tabernacle. It was a mess. Things were terrible. Um, the location of where God's name was situated was in, in flux. Okay? God was not blessing them. But consider this. this is a very important point for you and me, the average Joe. God was still accepting sacrifices and worship offered in each of these various locations in spite of the dubious circumstances of why they put the tent of meeting there. That was where the tent was. The leaders that God had appointed were given the control over it. They picked these places for their various and sundry reasons. And consider, when David sought God, where did he go? He went to where the tabernacle was doesn't mean that he agreed with why it was there. Now let's move on to the next section, okay? The tabernacle is going to move to Jerusalem, the place that we all think of when we think of the place where God's name is. Go to 1 Chronicles 16. Now let's read verse 1 just to kick off. I told you the ark had been lost. It was sort of out there, and, and it's, a, it's got a story of its own, which is very detailed. I'm not going to get into. But they brought the ark of God, and they set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. Huh. Now go to verse 39, where it says, and David left Zadok the priest and his fellow priests before the tabernacle of the Lord at the high place in Gibeon. What's going on? Well, um, David had brought the ark back to Jerusalem. And you know, the stories, bad stuff happened. But he brought the ark back and it, it says that he erected some sort of tent around it. It wasn't the, the true tabernacle though. But he was, I guess, doing it out of respect for the ark. And he erected this tamp, this sort of, you know, uh, I don't know, well, tent around it. Meanwhile, the true tabernacle of God was still in Gibeon. And the priesthood was divided. Because there were priests there with the ark, and there were priests there in Gibeon. It was a mess. It was a terrible, terrible mess. 
And at this point, God intervenes to make his will known. Go to 1 Chronicles 21. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 21, and uh, we'll go through to verse 29. Just so you know the, the setting on this, David's, this is when he does the census. God is very displeased. There's a plague on the land. God's not happy. And David's looking for answers. And then David approached and this man, Aruna, and uh, talked to him about his property there. And then when David approached and when Aruna looked and saw him, he left the, fleshing, the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. And David said, let me have the site of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord. This threshing floor is in Jerusalem on the Mount, Mount Moriah that the plague of the people may be stopped and sell it to me at full price. And Aruna said to David, ah, take it, take it, my Lord, and the king do whatever pleases him. Look, I will give the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing sledges uh, for the wood and the wheat for the grain offering, and I'll give you all this stuff. And King David replied to Aruna, no, 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 I insist on paying the full price and I will not take for the Lord what is yours. He wouldn't take it from this pagan guy. I will not take from the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. So David paid Aruna 600 shekels of gold for the site. And David built an altar to the Lord and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And he called upon the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of the burnt offering. This is taking place on Mount Moriah. And then the Lord spoke to the angel and he put his sword back in his sheath. And at that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. The tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time on the high place at Mount Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of the Lord because he was afraid of the sword of the angel. So something was keeping David from the tabernacle in Gibeon. God was intervening to make his will known. The sword of the Lord was against David and Gibeon, but it would be put away, apparently, in Jerusalem. A move to Jerusalem was God's will. And, you know, there was this sacrifice which was burnt up from heaven. Yet the tabernacle remained in Gibeon and actually would remain there all during the rest of David's reign. I think it's an interesting detail. The honor of bringing this transfer to pass would go to Solomon. Solomon. Go to 2 Chronicles 1. <clears throat> 2 Chronicles 1, verses 3 through 6. And Solomon and his entourage went to the high place at Gibeon. So it was still there. For God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses, the Lord's servant, had made in the wilderness. Now David had brought up the ark of God from Kirath-Jerim to the place where he had prepared for it because he pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. But the bronze altar that Belial, son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made was in Gibeon, in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Solomon and the assembly inquired of him there. So Solomon goes to Gibeon when he wants to seek God because that's where the tabernacle was where the place where God's name was. 
even though the ark was in Jerusalem. Now go to 2 Chronicles 5, verses 2 through 5. Then Solomon summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the chief of the Israelite families to bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David, it was this other location, and all the Israelites came together to the king at the time of the festival of the seventh month. And when all the elders of Israel had arrived, the Levites took up the ark and they brought up the ark and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. And the Levites carried them up. They're bringing them up to this new location. So they were going to basically put to rest all the confusion that was going on. Because it was terribly confused, terribly confused. Jerusalem was going to be the place where God's name would be. Drop down quickly to verse 14. It says, as stuff was going on, and the priests could no longer perform their service because the cloud, the glory of the Lord, filled the temple. God signified his approval. And other stuff was happening, good stuff. They were going to resolve this split in the priesthood, this split in the tabernacle itself. Where is God's name? Is it in Gibeon? Is it in Jerusalem? Notice, though, that this transfer takes place during the Feast of Tabernacles. Go to 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 8. 7 verse 8. It says, uh, So Solomon at this time observed the festival for seven days, and all Israel with him, a vast assembly people from Lebo Hamath to the wadi of Egypt. And on the eighth day they held an assembly, for they celebrated the dedication of the altar for seven days and the festival for seven days more. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. I think it's, it's interesting, worthy of note, that this transfer of where God's name is placed takes place at the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jerusalem, Jerusalem remained the place where God's name was going to be for a very long time, for the rest of Israel's history. Now, Jeroboam and the kings of the north, they were going to try and move the feast and the place where God's name would be. They wanted to, they, well, let's have it up here. woohoo, up in our area. And we went through that last year. God was, no. In fact, God cursed them for doing that. He did not approve of them deciding to keep the feast in a different location. Jerusalem was the place for a long time. But its time came to an end. As it bumped down the back stairs, we'll take a look at some of that. I mean, Judah, what happened? Judah, well, they had violated the covenant, okay? And God allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed. This was four centuries after this dedication of Solomon. So 400 years, and then God said, ah, we're going to shake things up again. And he removed his presence from the temple. Go to uh, Ezekiel 10. I think this is one of the most chilling verses in the Bible. Ezekiel 10, verse 18 through 19. This is a vision of Ezekiel about God leaving. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. And while I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and they went 
and the wheels went with them. Basically, it's a picture of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple and leaving, going. And for 70 years, there was no temple. They were off in captivity. There was no place where God's name was. And after 70 years, we've gone through this as well, God allowed Judah to return, and they could rebuild a temple of sorts. And that rebuilding was accomplished by men like Zerubbabel and um, Ezra, Nehemiah. And God's approval of this whole project was basically laid down by Haggai, Zechariah. Now, there is no record, though, that the cloud, that, that cool cloud, ever returned to this restored temple. There was no cloud. Nor was there any cloud that ever returned to this temple built, that was refurbished by Herod, the one that was there when the apostles were there. But God honored what went on at this temple. Even though it didn't have the Shekinah glory, God honored what went on there. That was okay to go there. But he wasn't present in the temple until he came in the flesh through the person of Jesus Christ. And I think once again it is significant that when Jesus first made himself known in the temple as a proclaimer of the kingdom of God, and a teacher and a preacher, it occurred during the Feast of Tabernacles. So when Jesus wanted to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, he went to Jerusalem, even though there's you know, some things missing. At that time, Jerusalem was still the place where God's name was to be found. But Jerusalem was going to be rejected because they rejected Christ. They rejected the presence of God himself. And it would no longer be the place where God chose to place his name. Go to John 4, verse 19 through 23. This is the conversation that Jesus is having with the Samaritan woman. And uh, they talk about the place of worship. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Now our ancestors, the Samaritans, worship on this mountain. She was talking about Mount Gerizim. But you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Jesus taught that moving forward, Jerusalem would not be the place. Actually, if you go to, uh, don't go there, we'll just, I'll just reference it, Matthew 24, verse 2, he also taught this temple is going to be torn down and destroyed. And history records that the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple happened in 70 AD. That was the end of Jerusalem as the place where God's name would be. Which brings us to the final section, 
the presence of God in the age of the church. For the past 1,950 years, Jerusalem has not been the place where God has chosen to place his name. Although people, and even people within the church of God, have tried to make it come back. They've tried to restore it to that status, but all those efforts have failed. During the church age, God's presence is within believers through the Holy Spirit. But that does not mean that places of gathering are irrelevant. No, we are still instructed to gather. But where? Go to 1 Peter 2, verse 4. First Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, speaking to the church, as you, church, come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, rejected by Jerusalem, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a temple to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Go to Ephesians 2, verse 20, or 19, verse 19, uh, through 22. Consequently, you, O church, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. The members of God's church are stones fitted together and built up into a dwelling place for God. Collectively, we are the present temple. And in that temple, as we read, we're training. We're training to serve as priests when Christ returns, offering up spiritual sacrifices, which really means lives patterned after Jesus Christ. The place that the Lord your God shall choose is the church. Christ is the head of that church, and he has appointed some to be administrative leaders. That's just the way God works. We looked at that in the Old Testament. It's the same now. Uh, we're in Ephesians. Go to chapter 4. We've touched on this multiple times in the past year. So Christ himself gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip his people. Go to 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, a bishop, episkopos, desires a noble task, I like that one because that's an administrative position. Yes, part of the qualifications were that he be apt to teach, 
but it's an administrative position to work on the logistics. And we have people that do that. They work on the logistics of how we do what we do. And Christ appoints people to do that stuff. As it was in Israel, God works through his appointed and ordained leaders. Yes, sometimes he makes his will known by supernatural events. Yeah. But if you think it through, most of the time he works through people. And there's enough leeway that, you know, people can challenge. I mean, people challenged Moses. They said, who are you? Because God works through people in a very human way. And he works through appointed and ordained leaders to name the location where his, his, his gathering place will be. And the church of God has that responsibility and that role. We establish and maintain locations for the observance of the Feast of Tabernacles. With, and, and we use strategic and practical reasons for picking where we go. We select locations that provide a certain degree of separation from the hustle and bustle of the world around. It's one of the criteria that feeds into where we're going to go. We try and balance that out, though, with looking for places that there's enough going on that families can have plenty of enjoyment and rejoicing. We also look for places that are large enough or small enough to accommodate the number of people that we're expecting. Sites that have affordable housing, as well as the fancy stuff that some people want. We need affordable things for people to gather together for people who are not so wealthy. Now, just speaking honestly, I hope I always do, at some point God may want us to change our approach. Yeah, he might. God honors what goes on from his appointed leadership, even when he actually wants him to do something different. But I believe, personally, this is my own theory, don't take it too far, I believe that God only intervenes when the situation and circumstances get out of control. He wants people in charge and he wants to let them learn how to lead, how to judge and make righteous judgment. And in the rare instances when God does intervene, and we've gone through a little bit of that looking at Israel, he withdraws his blessing which calls for understanding and good judgment and discerning. Because it's very easy to say, oh, well, you know, uh, that's Satan. <laughs> or whatever reason. But sometimes God withdraws his blessing when he wants people to change. Yep. And it often involves punishment. Now, I say that because I always, myself, remind myself, be careful what you wish for. You might wish, oh, I wish God was more obvious in what he wanted us to do. Well, be careful what you wish for. Because a lot of times when God wants to make his will known, it's tough going. It involves punishment and, and bad stuff happens. That's how God gets our attention. So be careful what you wish for. All that said, here's the conclusion. Whether the place is Gilgal, or Nob, or Shiloh, or Gibeon, or 
or Panama City, Florida, or Lake Junaluska, North Carolina, your responsibility is the same. Your responsibility is to appear before God at the appointed place where God has put his name. Because God will honor your personal desire and your effort to appear before him in the place he has chosen to place his name. He knows the heart. He knows your spirit. He knows where you're coming from. But he wants us to gather together. Be there. Appear before God in the place where he has chosen to put his name. And rejoice.